There are a lot of evidence-based treatments out there for behavioral and mental health disorders. For instance, there's interoceptive exposure therapy for panic disorder, exposure and response prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder, family-based treatment for eating disorders, and parent-child interaction therapy for young children with behavioral problems, among many others, of course. But what about specifically for non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short? A lot of therapies address the context in which self-injury may occur, but only a few treatments have been specifically designed to address NSSI. One of those treatments? TSIB, which stands for Treatment for Self-Injurious Behaviors. Recent research has shown that it may help reduce self-injury thoughts, urges, and behaviors, at least among young adults. To share more about the specifics of the treatment for self-injurious behaviors, I am joined today from Fordham University in New York by its lead developer, Dr. Peggy Andover. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Peggy Andover is an associate professor of psychology at Fordham University in New York, where she is head of the Mood and Behaviors Lab, which focuses on researching and developing a better understanding of self-injurious behaviors, including non-suicidal self-injury and attempted suicide in adults and young adults. Dr. Andover is a past president of ISSS, and her specific research focuses on understanding the mechanisms underlying NSSI and suicidality in developing and evaluating interventions for self-injury. Welcome, Dr. Andover. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How did you become interested in researching and treating self-injury? So this actually goes back to grad school, where when I went to grad school for clinical psych, I actually started out in a lab that studied depression in kids. And as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my line of research within the lab, I was just doing a lot of reading about different things and came across research on NSSI, which at that point was called self-mutilation. So I'm dating myself, and that was quite some time ago. But I really, I thought that it was such such an important problem and one that really didn't have much research, I guess, in comparison to other areas of psychology, but one that was super important and a really big, a really prevalent issue in the community. And as soon as I I really started kind of thinking of it and, and reading about it more and more, just the area of NSSI became something that I really felt like I needed to try to devote, you know, my skills and my time to help people to really better understand what was going on. And I think as I kept going with my training and as a clinical psychologist moving into treatment and treatment development and outcome research for NSSI was really just kind of a, a natural step. It's just it's something that so many people experience and something that is I think we're getting better at understanding it, but there's still a lot of work to be done in the area. You and your team developed Treatment for Self-Injurious Behavior, or TSIB for short. I assume some of your, the reason you got into researching self-injury comes into play here. Could you tell us a little bit about how you developed TSIB and what it entailed? Yeah, so absolutely. I think this came out of 
really understanding what was available in terms of treatments for NSSI, which during the time that we've been developing and testing and evaluating TSIP, there have been the research base for interventions for NSSI has been growing. But back when it first started, there really wasn't all that much research on what were effective treatments for NSSI. And some of the treatments that were out there that, that were effective may not have been developed for NSSI, or they were kind of larger treatments that kind of addressed other issues besides NSSI. And what we really wanted to do with TSIP was have something that was available for people who may not necessarily need some of the other big treatments that are available, that are effective at treating NSSI, but something that was really focused on treating the behavior itself. And the reason for that was twofold. Our research has shown that there are lots of people who engage in self-injury who may not meet criteria for another psychiatric disorder. So we wanted to have something that was kind of a, available to folks who really just needed treatment for NSSI. But the other reason too was that my goal and my hope is that this can also be, it can be a standalone intervention, but it could also be an adjunctive intervention where we can, a clinician can just have it in their toolbox. So if they're working with a client who's coming in for another issue, but then the client discloses self-injury or, or starts talking about their self-injury, this could be something that the therapist has in their toolbox that they could administer and put into place as part of a larger treatment for an individual. I like that point about the fact that there's so few treatments specifically for non-suicidal self-injury. There are some that address self-injury to some extent. Mm -hmm. Those such as dialectical behavior therapy are a little bit more extensive, and this is specific not just to overall emotion regulation or suicidal thoughts and behaviors, but this is targeting non-suicidal self-injury behavior, frequency, severity, and urges, and borrows from cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Mm -hmm. One thing that I also noticed and that I like about TSIB is that it's very short. Not only, like you said, can it be a standalone treatment, but it can be adjunctive to whatever treatment someone else is seeking. And very few people come to me for therapy only for self-injury. It's usually in the context, the general context in which the self-injury occurs, whether it's depression, anxiety, or whatever other things that are going on in the young person's life. But this is just a targeted nine sessions where I recently spoke at a, a local university here in Dallas, and that's perfect for them because many times in the college campuses, they don't necessarily have a whole lot more time or with limits with insurance companies having an, a nine session intervention can be really helpful. I would love for us to talk a little bit about those nine sessions and what they entail. Can you tell a little bit more about maybe what the first session looks like in each session? Yeah, totally, absolutely. I can even talk about them, maybe in chunks might make a okay. little bit more sense intervention. But so we start off the intervention, really, the first session is psychoeducation and setting the stage. In my experience, a lot of folks who would come in for treatment and a lot of folks who engage in self-injury where we do studies where we're asking about treatment, they don't necessarily know really kind of how, how prevalent self-injury can be or some of the functions for self-injury. And I think one of the things that we do in that first session that I think is pretty straightforward, but I, I think can be really eye-opening for different clients is that we just talk about really what self-injury is and, and how prevalent it is. And I feel like for some of the clients that we've treated, they've spent a lot of time thinking that they were alone in this 
and thinking that kind of experiencing stigma, some is their own kind of stigma towards the behavior, some is the stigma of friends and neighbors and family and things like that. So I think one of the first things that we do is really just provide some psychoeducation for really how common self-injury can be and what are some of the main functions of self-injury and different things like that. So that I think it's good to have that information, but I think it's also helpful for clients because I think they feel less alone and it feels like the problem isn't quite so big Mm -hmm. once you start talking about it. The other thing that we do is we really introduce some of the core concepts that we have in TSIB and really introduce the approach of TSIB. In TSIB, we strive very hard to be non-judgmental. So it's a really kind of um, non-judgmental intervention. But we also look at self-injury as a coping strategy, which is what a lot of research tells us. So this is really empirically based. So we tell people that the way that we look at self-injury is that it's a coping strategy. The fact that they're coming and they're seeking treatment suggests that it is not a coping strategy that they want to engage in. So our job in TSIB is to help them find other coping strategies that are more acceptable to the individual and that they do want to engage in so that the need to use self-injury as a method of coping with anything, with emotions, with things that are going on, is much reduced. So I think that those tend to be some of the really big, the big take-homes from our TSIB intervention, really that it's reviewing self-injury as a coping strategy and our goal is to find more adaptive coping strategies for you. And then we always look at the pros and cons of self-injurious behavior for the individual. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of people are really very willing and very open to talk about the negatives, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knows why they shouldn't be doing it, why the reasons that they don't necessarily want to do it. And some of it, I think, is things that people have heard. Some of it is really reasons for the individual that they truly don't want to be engaging in the behavior. But the thing that we do that may be a little different from what other folks kind of how people have been thinking about it is that we also pay really close attention to the pros of the behavior. So what are the benefits? Nobody does any behavior because it's bad for you. You're always doing something, even if it's a maladaptive coping strategy, because there's something, some benefit that that behavior is providing. So it's really important for us to figure out what is the benefit of that behavior so that we can go ahead and move forward. So I think that that's really how we spend that first session is really just kind of introducing the the general stance and, and what TSIB is about, and then really talking very openly about what are the pros and cons of NSSI for each individual. You had mentioned that some people may not be ready for change. And if this treatment, TSIB, is used as an adjunctive treatment in, let's say, someone that's experiencing depression, for instance, and self-injury comes out as maybe part of that depression, or maybe it's distinct, but that comes out maybe in treatment and therapy, and the clinician decides to use TSIB, and that person's not necessarily sure they want to change. You had mentioned exploring the pros and cons of Mm self-injury. Can you tell us a little bit about what might move someone toward wanting to change versus continuing with the behavior? No, absolutely. And I think I do have to say that after doing this in both like an open pilot and a small RCTs, we've treated not a lot of people, but we've treated a good number of people with the intervention. It's interesting because some people come in and they're like, I want to change this. I want to stop injuring. But then we also have other folks who come in where it's interesting because we were recruiting for a treatment study, so they, they know it's treatment. But they would come in and say, you know, I'm really ambivalent about change. I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm only hurting myself, and it works for me. So 
really what what we do and i would say that at least at least half of our clients are are in that position where there's a lot of ambivalence about actually doing something to change this behavior or at least stopping when we talk about those pros and the cons it's not really it's not the cons that make people want to change the behavior because the cons are always something that people know and it's something that they've thought about and they've been weighing out the pros and the cons themselves but when we're able to talk to somebody and say okay so now we're really looking at what is this behavior doing for you what function is this behavior serving and what if we could tell you that there were other things that you could do that would fill the same function and it's usually that that people end up saying like okay i don't know if you can but i'll give it a try and that's actually that's that's really all we're asking all we want is for people to give it a try and then we can see where where to go from there but it it's usually kind of that understanding that this intervention is not going to focus on why we shouldn't be doing this behavior because they already know it's really focused on okay let's find other ways to accomplish what this behavior is accomplishing for you and other ways that you're happy with So the technical term I suppose here would be differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors which is the core mechanism of change for TSIB. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and the technical term being like what about this treatment sets it apart from other treatments in changing behavior and so here we are adding healthy coping strategies versus subtracting maybe ones that are not so healthy. Mhm. Yeah. And it's not even we're we're not necessarily subtracting anything. We're I think what we what we do is really give people another option. One of the things that I think is kind of a little different about TSEB from what you may think of with other interventions is that because it has this behavioral focus where we've got this differential reinforcement that's going on, we spend a really long time in what's called functional assessment where we really try to understand what is what's reinforcing the behavior what are the reinforcers at play what are potential antecedents for the behaviors what are patterns that we see and then when when people decide or when people don't engage in the behavior what's going on there what makes it so that somebody can still deal with something effectively when they don't engage in NSSI so it's we find it very important to really take this you know kind of functional assessment approach and this really really close look at behaviors when they happen but also in the absence of those behaviors and that's something that already tells us what coping strategies and what coping skills you are bringing to the table that we could capitalize on so the first oh my gosh i think it's actually so it's a nine session intervention and it's about the first four sessions or i guess the first three if we've got kind of the introduction as the first session that really what we're doing are these functional assessments so we are really just kind of taking a look at your behavior a really close look at your NSSI and figuring out what are the patterns what is reinforcing this behavior what are things that we can do and starting to test out alternative behaviors without applying them to NSSI so we start out when we start thinking of alternative behaviors that might fill the same function let's say somebody engages in self injury for affect regulation right there there's a lot of negative affect and they self injure to essentially kind of relieve that rather than testing out and applying those different alternative behaviors that might help to you to relieve your negative affect when you're trying to self injure we'll do it in lower stakes things so you know you lose your keys or you can't find your keys or you know the remote is all the way on the other side of the room like these different things where that are super low stakes but you still have that feeling of negative affect we'll start putting those strategies into place and testing out and seeing how they work 
We also, in, in the intervention, we take a really individualistic approach to it. So we are always working with our client to figure out what strategies work for them specifically. I can give kind of suggestions of things that, that we have if somebody, you know, can't think of anything or if they just want to try some things out, but we're always modifying those suggestions and testing them out for the individual. And again, using those times that you don't self-injure to give us a hint of what skills you may have that would be effective that, again, we can kind of capitalize on. So we're always testing this out and getting this information in this kind of low stakes situation. And then about week five of the intervention, so kind of like even more than halfway through, I guess, that's the first time we actually ask clients to apply it to their self-injury. And again, we take this very collaborative approach where essentially we're testing hypotheses. We're all like detectives wanting to make sure like, okay, did this work? How do we tweak it? Did it not work? So that that really, that non-judgmental stance is really important throughout the entire thing because I'm not the expert in this. I may I may have a good sense of where research is and tools that we can bring to the treatment of self-injury, but the client is the person who's the expert in what works for them. So I really need to know their feedback and how they felt doing it and what stopped them from doing it. Did they like it? All those different things to kind of get together the best, I guess the best list of alternative strategies that we can for the individual. So it's really tailored to the individual here. Yeah, absolutely. So the first session, so someone seeking treatment using TSIB, they would come in and basically learn about how we conceptualize self-injury as a coping strategy for the most mm -hmm. part. And then sessions two, three, four would be more learning about what are the triggers of any type of distress, particularly, I guess, here, self-injury, mm -hmm. and what typically happens afterwards. Are there times where you're able to cope without having to self-injure? And like you had mentioned, the low stakes scenarios mm -hmm. where there's some mild distress, but the individual is able to cope well and being able to use those moments and apply those maybe toward other higher stakes emotional moments. There's no request for changing the self-injury at this point. There's no, not even trying to change the self-injury. It's not until sessions five and six. Yeah, exactly. And I think people tend to be kind of surprised about that, that we're actually not asking them to change. But we want to make sure that we have a really good sense, you know, when we're looking at those, the functions of the behavior, what's reinforcing it, when we're looking at the antecedents, we're all learning together. A lot of times clients, you know, you have an idea of why you might be doing something, but when we actually sit down and do a functional assessment, there may be some tweaks to that that need to be made, or there may be this entirely different situation that you engage in self-injury that maybe it's a little bit rarer, or it doesn't happen all that often, or maybe it does and it's just not something that you were thinking about, but that has its own kind of reinforcement strategy. So we, we really take that kind of assessment period really seriously in the, in the intervention. And when folks, in my experience, at the point that we ask people to actually apply the intervention to change their self-injury behavior, they're ready. A lot of times, will you know start off and people are very you know like oh I'm not sure I don't know I'm not ready to change I don't know if I want to give up give it up but I think one of the things that's been helpful in having the experience of running the intervention that makes me feel good about the intervention is that at the point that we say okay now I want you when you feel like you're going to self-injure to do these other things people say yep okay I'm ready to do that so I, I do think that that period that we have of the functional assessment is, is something that's kind of critical to the intervention, to getting people to where they need to be to actually do the work. So when you're doing the functional assessment and you're basically, you're assessing what function the behavior serves in, in that moment and then exploring alternative strategies, you've also talked about, not here, but in the treatment manual, in the, in the research, about taking a stepwise fashion or a stepwise approach to these coping strategies, the alternative coping strategies. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by stepwise fashion? 
we try, we do these behaviors on these very kind of low stakes types of things um, and different situations, and then slowly increase it up to when you're actually applying it to your self-injury. In addition, as we're doing that, we're gaining experience and doing these functional assessments with, okay, how did that alternative behavior work for you? And we're using that to kind of tweak the alternative behavior in and of itself. When we get to that point that we're actually applying a behavior as an alternative to self-injury, people have a lot of practice in doing that behavior. And people, we've already kind of refined it to be what we think is going to be the thing that is going to be the most effective in dealing with the person's self-injury and that it's something that is doable. I think one of the things that we can run into with coping strategies is that we can talk about lots of coping strategies that would be good, but it may not be good in that particular situation, or you may not be able to do it in that particular situation. Like, can you do jumping jacks in the middle of class? Probably not, you know? <laughs> so I think, you know, we've worked and refined things so that by the time you're applying it to self-injury, it's got kind of its, what we hypothesize as its best chance of working. But then we're completely open to the fact that that still needs refining. So then once you're applying it to self-injury, even then the additional weeks that that we have in the intervention, we're checking and seeing how we, it works and we're making tweaks even within those situations. We're kind of never approaching something as, yes, this is going to work. We're always approaching it as, let's try it out and see how it goes. And I think that that's helped us to be kind of pretty successful at getting a toolbox that, that can be helpful to folks. To expect someone to just use one coping strategy in a given moment for any emotional distress or urge, say, to self-injure, and to expect it to simply eradicate that distressing emotion or the urge to self-injure might not be realistic. And so let's say doing jumping jacks in the middle of class isn't an option. But even if it were, let's say you have a, an urge to self-injure, that's a 10 out of, you know, a zero to 10 level, and you are able to do jumping jacks, that might only bring you down to a nine or an eight. Exactly. I think what you have said, too, is that there's these other coping strategies that maybe you could implement or the individual could implement that could take them down from that eight now to a seven or a six. And so maybe they're at a six and they request to go to the school nurse's office to be able to talk yeah. to someone. Or for adults, maybe it's just taking a 10-minute break at work or calling up a, a friend or a loved one that could take them from a six down to a two. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that's so important for everybody to keep in mind that there's, you know, whether it's self-injury or, or anything else, there's not necessarily going to be one coping strategy that's going to poof, like, poof, you know, like, I feel great now, you know, and sometimes, especially when you've got this high level of distress, and I think a lot of this comes from, you know, distress tolerance in, in DBT, when you've got this super high level of distress, sometimes all you can do is just kind of chip away at it. Mm -hmm. And that is perfectly fine. And I think that that's something that sometimes people don't necessarily know is an okay thing. That when I do a strategy, if I'm super upset, of course, deep breathing isn't going to work. But deep breathing might get me down just a little bit. And that lets me do my next coping strategy. Or at least it puts me in a frame of mind that now I can think of other options to address the situation. So I think that's something that we also, we try to teach our clients. And it's, I mean, it's just good to remember always. But it, it is something that we try to teach our clients in TSIB that sometimes it takes, it's kind of like a multi-pronged attack on doing this where maybe previously, yes, you could self-injure and that would help you feel an awful lot better. 
And now maybe you do have to do a couple of different things to get you to that point, but you can do a couple of different things to get you to that point and you'll still end up feeling, having the relief that you would have felt if you had self-injured. And it can take practice, like with these coping strategies. And what I, what I like here with TSIB is there's a lot of kind of behavioral aspects here where there's homework. So you give them homework. What homework does this look like? People are doing these functional assessments. So it's, it's the traditional antecedent behavior consequence chart, essentially from probably session two until the very end homework is really doing these functional assessments and people end up being able to do them essentially in their sleep because they do so many of them. And we review no matter what we're doing, what the goal is for that particular session, we always start off by reviewing the past week's functional assessment and really kind of using that to help us make changes that we need to and make adjustments and also troubleshoot like, all right, so last week was a really, really bad week for you and you self-injured. Let's talk about how the antecedents had changed. And let's also talk about that this does not mean that the intervention failed. It doesn't mean that you can't do this. All it means is that this is another data point for us to look at. So let's see what was different last week than the week before that you use self-injury as a coping mechanism. Everything is just data points. And one of the things that I really think in terms of and what we tell people at the end of the treatment when we're kind of doing our um, like our termination sessions is that the skills that they've learned through TSIB is not necessarily just the alternative behaviors and that list of behaviors that they've acquired and learning to put it into place and learning to kind of use that stepwise fashion in terms of doing it. But one of the things that they've really learned is how to do a functional assessment. So in the future, when self-injury does pop up again, they have the tool to sit there and look at it in a very structured way and they know how to determine what is reinforcing this behavior or what has changed in the antecedents. So even the, the method of assessment that we're using, I'm hopeful that in the future, it ends up being part of an individual's toolbox for how to deal with their self-injury going forward. That self-analysis, I think, can be so helpful for so many people. I know as a psychologist, people think I'm constantly analyzing other people, but for the most part, I'm analyzing myself <laughs> and, and what's triggering in me or, or the antecedent in me and what I think or, or do in response to that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> to recap, so this first session is conceptualizing self-injury as a coping strategy, and then sessions two through six are exploring alternative coping strategies that may serve the same function, and then eventually around session five or session six, practicing that. And then there's a little bit of a, a switch for the next couple sessions. Session seven and eight are a little bit different. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Absolutely. So, so in session seven and eight, we put this into the intervention because... I'm trained in CBT. I am a behaviorist at heart. So I'm, you know, as you can probably tell by the intervention, there are other things that may be antecedents or may be contributing to somebody's self-injury that also need to be addressed that may not be addressed through what we've been doing in the treatment. So we have these kind of, we call them individualized modules. So there are three particular modules that we will work with the individual. It's not a decision that the therapist makes on their own, although we may have an opinion. We're always working with the individual too, to see like what seems to be some of the themes that are coming up in the behavioral assessment, in the functional assessments for somebody's self-injury. And then we have these kind of specific modules that people can choose from 
that may be addressing what might be potentially a, a skills deficit that may be contributing or, or something that may be contributing to the self-injury in a larger way. So people could choose from interpersonal effectiveness, so kind of like a assertiveness training in a sense. And that would be for somebody who it really seems like their self-injury tends to be triggered by interpersonal situations or interpersonal conflict. We want to give them some of the skills to be able to address that conflict head on. Then we also have cognitive restructuring. And that's a little bit more for folks whose self-injury may be in response to different cognitions, like I need to be punished or I'm not worthy, I'm not loved, different things like that. And then we've got a distress tolerance module for folks whose self-injury really seems to be in response to these just high, high levels of negative affect. Based on the functional assessment, we'll generally have a sense of which module folks should go into. If we're kind of between two, we'll work with the individual to kind of pick one or the other, whatever the individual thinks would be the most pertinent and the most useful to them now. And then in those two sessions, we're kind of focusing on the issues in that module in a way that's very targeted to self-injury. So when we're doing, for example, cognitive restructuring, it's not kind of a general cognitive restructuring or automatic thoughts. It's really the automatic thoughts that are pertaining to self-injury most recently. We're also in those sessions doing our functional assessment. So there's that aspect too, where we're always kind of tweaking those those alternative behaviors. But then we're, we're doing these different exercises that are a little bit more specific to these areas and specific to self-injury within these areas. Now, I will absolutely be the first person to say that two sessions of cognitive restructuring is not cognitive restructuring. So, you know, this also is thought to kind of be a bit of a segue either into back into the treatment that the person is in if TSIB is used adjunctively or at the end of the intervention and the end of these two sessions will help people if they're interested in getting into a treatment that's kind of more of this. So it's it's definitely one of the things about those modules is that we wanted to kind of give people some skills in these areas that are specifically related to self-injury with the understanding that that is probably not going to be enough and they're most likely going to need additional help in those areas going forward. If an individual really recognizes two of those three individualized modules as applying to them, say the cognitive restructuring, the cognitive distortions, as well as the interpersonal communication or interpersonal effectiveness, is there ever a time where you would add those additional two sessions on to TSIB, even Ah. to do all three modules? I guess that would put it instead of nine total sessions, it could put it to 13 total sessions. Is that ever an option? That's a fantastic question. And because in our experience with the intervention, we were doing it as part of like an RCT and an open pilot trial, it had to stick to the manual. But I mean, absolutely, this is kind of like my ultimate goal for TISA would be like when it's out in the open, when it's actually being used, it may be that you're using those sessions as a jumping off point for a longer therapy, or it may be that, okay, we've given you some of these skills to deal with the interpersonal effectiveness that you need to deal with right now. Now let's talk about your distress tolerance. And then in a week or two, let's go back and talk about your your interpersonal communication a little bit more. So I think my hope is that those aspects of the intervention are something that would lead to essentially kind of more treatment and can be used together or expanded on or kind of mixed and matched. But unfortunately, because of the confines of the RCT, we weren't able to test that. I'd like to ask a couple questions about the distress tolerance individualized yeah. module, the that third one you had mentioned. Within there, you talk about and differentiate between pain and suffering. Could you explain a little bit about what that might entail within that session? 
I think pain is something that we all experience and there's always going to be, we can't really get away from pain. There's always going to be painful experiences in our lives and it's part of life and we don't really have a choice about that. But to me, suffering entails really, we don't always need to suffer through that pain. And I think that that's part of where that distress tolerance comes into play, where hopefully when we're talking about distress tolerance, it's, it's that understanding that sometimes there are going to be painful experiences in our lives that we have to deal with and we don't have a choice and we can't always take them away. So, you know, loss, right? Um, loss of a relationship, loss of a person. There is really no way, nothing that I can do that is going to take away that pain. But I can do things that can help me to tolerate that level of pain and tolerate that distress better and, and help me to really kind of avoid some of the suffering that that pain could bring if I'm not accepting of the pain and accepting of the distress and learning how to tolerate it. And that distress tolerance, that's also really where kind of that stepwise, you know, I can reduce distress a little bit and then a little bit and then a little bit. That's really where we talk about that aspect of applying the alternative behaviors, because we tend to be dealing with such high levels of negative affect and levels of distress that just one thing is not going to bring us all the way down. But again, we can kind of chip away at it in a way that's going to bring us to a point that we can more effectively use alternative strategies without having to self-injure to really be able to kind of experience and deal with this experience of pain. When we simply deny our feelings and try to escape them all the time, that that's it's painful, but then that leads to suffering. The more we avoid it, the more we stuff them away rather than just allow ourselves to experience them and tolerate that distress. Yeah. And then you also differentiated between dealing with distress versus tolerating distress. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Dealing with distress is when we're actually kind of taking that level of distress and doing something, even if it is kind of in this kind of stepwise situation, to make steps towards it. So so essentially doing something about it, right? I can have a like a super, super, super bad day at work and I have all this kind of negative affect and I do my deep breathing, it gets me down to an eight. Now I go for a walk and now I'm down to a six. And then I, you know, talk to a friend and now I'm down to a four and now I'm able to do something to help me deal with the situation. So now I send that email to my coworker telling her that I would have liked her support in this meeting or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Distress tolerance is that there are certain things that we're just not really going to be able to change, right? So, you know, I, I always think of, you know, death of a family member, death of a loved one, right? There's really not much, if anything, that I can do in that situation to make me feel better. There's no solution to that situation. In those cases, I need to have the skills to be able to tolerate that level of distress and tolerate that level of pain. And it's not so much that there is a solution or that there's something that I'm going to be able to do about it. It's one of those situations where I, I essentially, I have to be able to tolerate that level of distress to be able to sit with it because that is one aspect that's not really going to, it's not going to change. There's nothing that I can really do about it other than tolerate the distress well enough to get through it. Yeah. So when we're dealing with distress, the focus tends to be, oh, I got to get rid of this distress mm -hmm. rather than I can get through this distress, mm -hmm. which is the tolerating aspect mm -hmm. and reminds me of the interoceptive exposure exercises for panic disorder or panic attacks. Oh, yeah. A lot of people just want to get rid of the panic, want to get rid of the anxiety. But in reality, when we learn to tolerate, 
the distress associated with anxiety and panic that interestingly, the panic and anxiety tend to go away when we take that approach. That's a fantastic comparison. Exactly. You got it. Absolutely. So the final session, session nine, Mm -hmm. is kind of wrapping things up. Can you tell us a little bit about that final session? Yeah. So in in the final session, it's it's a termination session, right? But we really want to make sure that people have a good understanding of where they've been and how far they've come. So people have been giving us data, you know, kind of throughout this entire time about how often they self-injure. And, and what we do is we actually graph it for them and like a true kind of behavioral graph. And I've, I've had people, you know, ask to take it home. They want to put it on their fridge or hang it on their wall or something like that. But what we do is we, we, Part of it is definitely a celebration. You know, we, we see with individuals and we see with the data that there may be some re- a bit of reactivity at the beginning because people are in treatment and they kind of now have this mindset to change. So they may still be self-injuring, but it might be a little bit less than where it was at baseline. But generally speaking, there tends to be kind of this reduction at around week five when we first actually ask them to put this in place that, that carries forward. So it's sometimes it's nice and it's a celebration. But the other thing that we want to make sure that people are aware of are different blips. So there are almost invariably, everybody has a week during this intervention that's really hard for them. And you'll see that maybe their self-injury has been on a downward trend and now it pops up, right? And we pay, we, we don't try to gloss over that. It's, it's really important that we don't, but we, we wanna talk about what was going on there in a way that helps the person to understand what led to that increase or, or what that increase was about and just kind of refresh their memory in case they don't remember, but also to show them how even in times that they may have experienced a, a, an increase in self-injury, it's not something that remained that way. And when we were able to tweak some of those coping skills that people were using or the alternative behaviors or when we were able to talk about it or when the the crisis had passed, their self-injury continued on that trajectory downward. And I think that that's something that's kind of really important for us is not showing this expectation or this celebration that, ah, yes, the, you know, the intervention went well. We want people to know that when there are these blips, when these behaviors do occur, it's not the end of the world. And they have the skills in order to be able to deal with it. So we, we talk about their where they've been and we, we talk about that and the skills that they've attained. And we've got our skills where we say, OK, yes, alternative behaviors and functional assessment, those are skills. But then we actually ask people for their individual skills that they feel like they've gained from it. Sometimes it's the same as ours and sometimes it's it's totally different. But one of the things that I think is also really critical in that intervention is that for everybody, we discuss relapse because we work under the assumption that this is something that's going to happen again. So, you know, it may be next week, it may be in three years from now, but there is going to be a time potentially that your self-injury will occur again. And we want to make sure that when that happens, people are looking at it from the frame of mind, not of, oh my God, I'm a treatment failure, but they're looking at it from the frame of mind of, ooh, data. Okay, so something's going on. What's going on? Let's take a look at what's happening. And I have the tools to be able to address it. So for us, that aspect of relapse prevention is something that's really important. We do also use it as an opportunity to encourage people if they're interested in going into other types of treatment to help them out with that. So, you know, things like referrals or, you know, discussing what does therapy look like is is always kind of a good thing. We usually go over in that session. I'm not going to lie. And I know being in a a research study affords us that ability to go over, but it usually termination sessions are are always kind of chock full of stuff. And TSIB is is unfortunately no exception to that. (laughs) I like that you talk about the likelihood of 
urges and or behaviors of self-injury coming up again later, but then reminding them that they have the tools and they have learned the tools to be able to manage and to cope. Is there a differentiation here between lapses and relapses? You know, we, we don't, because I think it's potentially what you do in that situation when it happens again. And I don't know how helpful it would be for us to make that differentiation, whether or not like one sounds worse than the other. I think regardless of I did it once and ooh, let me get my functional assessment out and, you know, go back to my notes from TSEB and see what's going on. Or I've been doing it for three months and now I'm at the point where I'm like, wait a second, I hang on, I don't I don't know that this is good for me or I don't want to be coping in this way. Either's fine. Because at the point that you decide to take a look at that behavior, you still have all of the stuff that's in your toolbox that you can go back and address it. You've mentioned a couple of studies that you've done on TSIB, so the RCT, Randomized Controlled Trial, and a pilot study. So with these studies, what have you found as far as TSIB's effectiveness in decreasing self-injury frequency and self-injury urges? So, so basically, how good is TSIB at helping people stopping self-injuring? So I do have to say that our answer to that question is not particularly detailed because of the stage of research. So we first did an open pilot just following kind of the stages of treatment development and evaluation. We did an open pilot where everybody got the intervention and we just looked to see, hey, should we, is this worth looking at at an RCT? And it was. Then we did a small RCT, but it was really small. So we had, you know, a little over 30 people entirely in the RCT. So really what we're kind of looking at at this point is different markers for should we look at this further? Is this a promising intervention? And the data suggested that it was, that it is promising. It looks like we were comparing TSIB to treatment as usual, which was essentially when folks who were assigned to our control condition came into the intervention or came in for the, the baseline assessment. We helped them, we gave them referrals and made phone calls on their behalf or with them and tried to get them into treatment. It's difficult because there isn't really kind of a gold standard widely available treatment for NSSI. So our treatment of, as usual included folks who were receiving all sorts of interventions, but then also people who actually weren't receiving interventions, which unfortunately can be kind of treatment as usual for NSSI can be no treatment. So we were comparing those two conditions and it did seem that we started seeing effects for decreased NSSI for TSIB compared to this treatment as usual group when we would predict it. We actually started seeing changes in behavior at five weeks that then carried out to a three-month follow-up. So even though the two groups were not statistically different from each other, it was kind of too small of a sample to expect statistical difference. But some of those indicators of clinical significance, like effect sizes and things like that, were really promising. The other analysis that we did for TSIB was look at moderators. So were there certain people that TSIB was more effective for or less effective for? And it seemed like TSIB could potentially be more effective for folks who have a greater frequency of NSSI, folks who at, were at higher levels of NSSI at baseline um, had more of a decrease in NSSI over the follow-up people than people who were assigned to treatment as usual. And there may be some implications for folks who had increased levels of anxiety, but we're not really 100% sure about that. So it, it's hard for us to say that it definitely was more effective or it wasn't more effective overall or that it's, you know, so what we can say now is that the data is kind of supporting that we do more, more research on it. It seems like it can be a promising intervention. 
I like how you mentioned that it was around week five that you noticed a difference between the TSIB group versus the treatment as usual group because it's at week five is when you start to ask the individuals to apply alternative coping strategies to their self-injury urges. And yes. that's yep. it was nice to see when when I was actually looking at the data, at first I kind of, you know, I'm stuck in this kind of data analysis phase and I was like, wait a second, what's going on here at week five? Why is this happening? And I was like, wait a second, that's when we actually ask you to do something about it. Okay, that makes sense. Good. Consistent with the intervention. So, <laughs> Are you doing more studies on this right now? Are there randomized controlled trials going on as we speak? You know, right now we are, we don't have anything that's going on. Although I would like to do a larger RCT to really test out the effectiveness. I do think though that my next step research-wise is going to be to look at this in, in adolescence. So the sample that we were using for TSIB and who it was tested on and who it was geared towards was more of a young adult population. I think that there are definitely, there's maybe some changes that we could make to make it a little bit better for an adolescent population. But I think that there's probably a lot of good things in the intervention that I'd like to see. I'd like to see it apply to adolescents. So I feel like that's going to be our next stage is modify it and evaluate it in younger folks. I would especially appreciate that since I work with adolescents, I use elements of TSIB in my work yeah. in treating some of the adolescents that I meet with that engage in self-injury. Yeah. How, how do you find it? What elements do you use and how do you find it working out? Obviously focus a lot with the functional assessment, exploring you know, yeah. the antecedents or the triggers to the behavior and really help them kind of engage in self-reflection and looking back. Because I know a lot of young people, just not every, not every young person, of course, but yeah. uh, many of that I may work with will engage in the behavior seemingly impulsively yeah. without being able to sit down and reflect what was going on. And so revisiting that I think has been helpful mm -hmm. as well as exploring alternative healthy coping strategies and knowing that engaging in one healthy coping strategy using the graduated or the stepwise fashion mm -hmm. is not necessarily going to decrease all of your self-injury urges from a 10 to a zero, but it maybe can get you down to a seven enough to maybe mm -hmm. reach out to a friend to get you to a six or a five or a four. And so I exactly. think that's where the stepwise fashion has been helpful. And I implement that also with safety planning, not just for self-injury, but for suicidal thoughts and behaviors where adding a list of healthy coping strategies or people that someone can talk to in a moments of crisis if they're considering suicide and knowing that, yeah, journaling might be great, but it's not going to get you to where you need to be fully safe. Maybe you need to reach out yeah. to your friend or your cousin or your mom mm -hmm. or dad or grandparents. So I apply it that way as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. There are so many similarities with that. We do the same thing with safety planning. And I think it's just so helpful and so informative. There are very few things that when you're that upset or that distressed, that it's kind of like a one and done kind yeah. of coping mechanism, you know. How can clinicians like therapists, counselors, psychologists become familiar or even proficient with TSIB? Where might they be able to get that? Is that available? Do they need special yeah. training? Oh, you know, I don't know yet. So to date, I guess the clinicians that we've trained for TSIB have really been graduate students in our doctoral program. Um, so there, there is a training program, actually, but it's it's something that we were using to train my doctoral students and supervision and things like that. So I guess we, we don't have a training program, I guess, for public consumption. But anybody who's interested is more than welcome to email me, and I'm happy to distribute our TSIB manual. And I'd, I'd love to hear if folks are using it, how it's how it's working out for them and things we can maybe improve. You might get a lot of people reaching out to you. Is it okay if I include your email in the episode notes? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that kind of answers my next question, knowing that 
a number of individuals with lived experience of self-injury might be interested in applying this to themselves and wondering how they might be able to find a clinician or therapist that's proficient in TSIB. Probably not easy, but would someone that's well-versed in cognitive behavioral therapy be a similar option? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, TSIB is really at its root, it's a very behavioral intervention. So I, I think folks who are, or therapists who are really kind of proficient in kind of behavioral aspects or, or trained in behavioral aspects. So that might be cognitive behavioral therapist. There are a lot of aspects to TSIB that are similar to aspects of DBT. So dialectical behavior therapy is also really behavioral. So I think therapists that have more of a behavioral lean, I think are definitely likely going to be people who kind of approach this intervention or approach the behavior in this way. You know, I I will say too, and this is just, you probably have had this experience working for folks, uh, working with people too, but one of the things that I think can be really important for folks who do have a history of self-injury who are seeking treatment is that it's important to remember that not every therapist is right for every client. And I, I think that the match between a therapist and a client is really important. And it may be that, you know, you may think that maybe your therapist isn't comfortable treating this or or whatever it happens to be. I think a lot of therapists are, but you know, I just have had the experience in talking to people that I think sometimes people would experience a mismatch between what they were looking for and what the therapist was able to provide or the therapist's stance on self-injury that then kind of, you know, in some situations colored people's thinking about therapy going forward. And I think something that's really important to remember is that if you don't work well with one therapist, chances are exceptionally likely that you will work just fine with another. So I think um, if you do find somebody that maybe doesn't take the approach that is approach that's particularly helpful for you, that doesn't mean that you're not right for therapy. It may just mean that you need somebody else to talk to. That actually kind of brings us to our closing comments in talking about, based on our conversation today, what else or what might you recommend to individuals with lived experience of self-injury other than making sure that they find a good fit for a therapist? I think the thing that I really, it's all stuff that we've talked about, but I think the thing about finding a therapist who works with you, I think is super, super important. And just something that I would see continuously in my clients. Um, So many had stories about something that happened when they were adolescents, and then they just, you know, treatment wasn't for them. And that's, that's just really, really not the case. The other thing that I do think is really important to, to keep in mind is that what research tells us, what this work tells us is that self-injury is, it's a coping strategy. It may not be the coping strategy that you want, and then that's fine. And then that's what treatment is for. And I would go out on a limb and suggest that there are probably, even if you think that self-injury is, is the most effective thing for you and the only thing that you can do, that's probably not the case. And it may be helpful to, to find somebody who can help you find these other strategies to deal with things. But I think knowing that you're not alone in this, I think is really important. And just, you know, for either people with lived experience or, or people who loved people with lived experience. So families too, just knowing that this is really, people don't engage in self-injury because it's bad people engage in self-injury because it's it's filling a function. And once we know what that function is, we can find other ways to address it. And that, that's simplifying things, you know, but, but I do, I very, very strongly believe that this is work that can be done. Is there anything else you'd like to recommend to parents, say, of children who have self-injured or who oh, self-injured? It's hard. 
I want to fully acknowledge that. And I think being there for your child and being supportive of them. I think sometimes I, I hear every once in a while about parents who, it's hard. It's, we, we talk a lot about the cognitions and the feelings and the distress of the person who's engaging in self-injury, but then for the parent or caregiver or, or the person's loved one, you know, there's also, there's a lot of feelings there too. You know, what, what did I, did I do something wrong? Is this, my gosh, sometimes people will even say something like, are they trying to manipulate me? Is this a call for help? And those things aren't, they're natural thoughts, but it's, they're not helpful thoughts. And very often they're not really true thoughts. And I think just kind of making sure that, that you know that this is happening because this is the way that your child knows how to cope with something it's a coping strategy. And I think that that's really something I know I sound like a broken record, but I really do believe that that's an important thing to to keep in mind and to help you to reframe potentially some of these thoughts that aren't helpful. And it leaves open this avenue for hope and for treatment. Because if we're thinking of this as a coping strategy, there are other coping strategies that we can use. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether they're clinicians like therapists, psychologists, or researchers? I think folks who are likely listening to this podcast probably have a, a whole leg up on this, where I think just educating yourself and just being open and approaching it non-judgmentally, and also individually. I think in research, we very often, we, we see things in aggregate. And it's true that these are functions of a behavior in aggregate, but the details of it for your specific client may be different. And I think being open to kind of the individual and the individual's experience is really, really important. I also just think it's really important to get some kind of training in dealing with self-injury. I think some of the, some of the experiences that I heard about that clients would tell me about previous therapists a lot of times it had to do with people who were kind of maybe uncomfortable with treating self-injury or, or scared of it or scared of what it meant. And I think being able to educate yourself about what self-injury is and what it isn't and what are kind of the best practices for dealing with it, I think can go a long way to being able to provide that open and non-judgmental space for talking to somebody about their self-injury. Well, great recommendations. Thank you so much, Dr. Andover, for joining us, for sharing your expertise and describing a treatment that's not well known, but that could be very helpful for so many people. And I suspect that it might become more well known after people listening to this. And at least that's my hope for those who do want to seek treatment and are willing to take the time to do the functional analyses, the functional assessments to figure out what this behavior does for me and what I can do instead, take that stepwise fashion approach. This is gonna be really helpful, I think, for those listening. Awesome, thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.